a value jet flight is flying from Florida to Atlanta when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this flight to crash into gator-infested swamplands? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Thanks to Bob for upgrading your patronage. Thanks. Appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you. We will send you merch eventually. Those of you who requested ducks, we will also send you your ducks. There are quite a few of you. Make so. sure there's two ways you can send us that information. Number one, you can email us telling us you want ducks with your mailing address. Or there is a form on the website at the bottom of the homepage where you can request ducks. If you are a patron and you request a duck, we will squint at you for not providing your mailing address. If it's not already provided. Just feel the hypothetical squint. 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 (laughs) Also, I don't know about January listener episodes. We currently have two. They're both from David. One of them's from December. One of them's for January. So... We might end up passing it for another month. (laughs) You guys need to start submitting your stories. We can't do listener episodes without stories. So... That's how that works. That's how that works. Maybe we should post a frantic thing on social media I'll do, again. I'll do that tomorrow. If you've ever, if you have like, even, it doesn't matter. Like, it could be literally any story. If you just have some aviation-related story, you're like, God, I have the craziest story. I gotta tell you. The love story seemed to go well last year. We can do that. Yeah, if you have a, an aviation love story. Something related. Or just love story period. Whatever. It's the cute, sappy month. Mm-hmm. So, we know some of you already submitted yours from last year, and thank you. Please don't send them again. <laughs> yeah. If you have new they ones, They were though. really cute, but... I loved reading them. So. Also... Yeah, they were actually really good. Oh, since this episode's coming out in February... Oh, yeah. This oh, and February. happy birthday, Dad. Oh. Today is your birthday. Oh. is That's all housekeeping, right? I think so. Yeah. I don't think we have anything else. All right. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today... We're covering kind of a big one in its own way. While it wasn't a big crash, it did make waves. Oh, it made waves. We're covering Value Jet Flight 592. Thank you to our patron, Helen, for recommending this episode. And this is your preemptive Miranda Rage warning. You have been warned. If you're it's wearing headphones, happen. I would not put that on full volume. When, when you hear... My, the intonation that I get when I expect Miranda to get mad, I recommend you pull your earbuds or earphones away from your ears or turn down the volume for a bit. It's inevitable. It'll yeah. happen, I mean, a lot. I think it's going to be kind of a constant. To prompt this, a lot of people in the United States government got fired. So. Oh, that's good. This happened on May 11th of 1996. I was not born yet. Just Neither be- was I. <laughs> Just before both y'all were born. Nick was alive. I was alive. This was a Douglas DC-9-32. So this was the longer version of the DC-9, but prior to the MD-80. With the tail number November 904, Victor Juliet. This was to be a flight from Miami to Atlanta on the low-cost carrier value jet. They were one of the first truly low-cost carriers in the United States. Unfortunately, this did not fare well for them. Their call sign was Critter. Critter. Because they had like a cartoon character painted on their planes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So on all of the transmissions, I think you're referencing it. Yeah, there'll be Critter. You'll hear Critter a couple times. Okay. Captain for the flight was Candy Kubik. 
She was 35 years old. She had 8,928 hours total. And she was a captain! That makes me so happy. She was a captain. She had 2,116 hours on the DC-9. The first officer was Richard Hazen. He was 52 years old, so almost 20 years older. He had 11,800 hours total, of which 2,148 hours were on the DC-9. So, so he actually had more of, of yeah. he had more of everything. Age, hours total, and hours on type. But, but only barely only on a first type. officer. Some, you know, some people make a career out of being a first officer, and I can respect that, to be fair, because it's just as hard in its own right. Sometimes harder, actually. So if people like it, then, hey. Good for you. Good for you. It's like people who made entire careers out of being flight engineers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, too, and I don't know his backstory, but he may have been a training pilot. This may have been something he wasn't doing full-time anymore. And so, who knows? Who knows his story? You know, so there's a lot of situations like that where they just stay first officers because they have other engagements, things like that. Yeah. This same flight crew flew the aircraft from the airline's base in Atlanta on Flight 591. But they were delayed in departing Atlanta about 35 minutes late due to an unexpected maintenance issue with the right auxiliary hydraulic pump circuit breaker, as well as an issue with the interphone system on board that prevented proper announcements and calls from the cockpit to the cabin, as well as the airplane also was experiencing an issue with the autopilot. So both issues with the interphone and the hydraulic system were figured out while in Atlanta. Those were resolved. The autopilot issue, however, maintenance deferred, and had been deferring for several days. The airplane was oscillating, basically. Or porpoising. Porpoising. So it was going up and down. Yes. Uh It was going up and down while in cruise flight on autopilot. So they were having to hand fly the airplane. I was going to say, does that mean they had to hand fly it the whole way? Pretty much. Now, this is where I had a question while we were watching the Air Disasters episode. Would not an autopilot be on the minimum equipment list? It was on the minimum equipment list, and there are functions of the autopilot in particular that you need to have. This, apparently, they managed to make an amendment to this aircraft's minimum equipment list while this was an issue that allowed it to fly. Excuse me? I don't like that. That's not a good omen for an episode we're covering. No, usually in the modern day, autopilot is a must. Also, quick question. Yep. Um, if it was so important, because we know that it's pretty important, Mm -hmm. why did they keep deferring the maintenance? They didn't have enough airplanes to keep to schedule. So they fixed the problems that they could when the short amount of time the airplane was on the ground. They already delayed it by 35 minutes, and they were like, we're not going to take an extended delay. This airplane's got a bunch more flights today. we got to get it moving. So they were waiting until the airplane had some extended time on the ground, probably overnight. In Atlanta. Yes. Because it was an Atlanta-based airline. Yes, probably in Atlanta overnight sometime when they could repair this problem. But it took that long? It had been several days. The issue was first reported on the 9th. They had done a repair where they replaced one of the computers for the autopilot. And then it was... The original problem was... It was porpoising at altitude. At 33,000 feet. Then when they replaced the computer, it was porpoising at all altitudes. So... Oh, so they made it worse. (laughs) Cool. So they just, they kept pushing this off because they were like, I don't know, we tried something, now we've really got to dig in deep. I mean, like you said, you can probably hand fly it, but it... It's not great. It is not fun. It's not fun. I mean, you can trim the airplane and it'll hold pretty steady, but it's still still not fun to hand fly an airliner for that long. No. Anyways. So as if that's not omen for anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a great start. 
<laughs> to be like, oh wait, there's more. Yeah, that's <sighs> that's just that's just the beginning. The airplane arrived at Miami at 1.10 p.m. and had been due to depart back to Atlanta as Flight 592 at 1 p.m. So it was already delayed. Right. Like, it, it arrived 10 minutes after it was supposed to have left. And that's also because their turn time for this flight was 35 minutes oh, in that, Miami. That's not long enough. Yeah, their original turn time was 35 minutes. If you know anything about how turn times work, like, the people have to get off, they have to clean and restock the airplane, and potentially get new crew. We'll and, and all the cargo. We'll talk about that. And, car and yeah, and then get everybody back on and make sure everybody's on board. That's not enough time. We'll for talk about that time. in a minute. That is so not enough time. I don't know time. how they were doing that, but we'll talk about that in a minute. The flight was filed to fly at flight level 350 for a flight time of 1 hour and 32 minutes back to Atlanta. The flight was to have 105 passengers and 5 crew, which, that's literally what it says in the report. I know what you told me later. Do we want to save that? Yep. Okay, save for later. Uh-oh. We'll save that for the recommendations section. That will be more stuff you'll be angry about later. They did some stupid I don't know if that would be a passenger's... I don't know if that would be a passenger's fault, or if that would be... No, that was definitely the airline's fault. You think? Yes. They fixed it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we'll get there later. <laughs> what? You will probably find out later. <laughs> God, God, Anyways, guys. there were actually 105 passengers and five crew on the Okay, flight. so 110 people on board. 110 people on board. Correct. Great. Yes. I'm so... We're not laughing because it's funny. We're, like, nervous laughing. I'm so sorry. Yes. Anyways... In the short turnaround time, they had to offload all arriving passengers and load all the departing passengers, as well as unload the luggage and cargo, and load 4,109 pounds of new cargo, including luggage, company-owned material, and mail, and they had to do all of this in under 30 minutes now to turn the airplane around faster than normal. Fun fact, almost every flight you go on includes U.S. mail. Yep, it's true. I mean, that makes sense. A lot of mail, a lot of the cargo carriers like FedEx and DHL and UPS... They ship via the airlines. If you get something overnight, most likely it flew on United or Delta or Lufthansa or whatever it is. It flew on something probably not overnight. Lufthansa. No, probably. Okay. Majority of their cargo is mail. It comes over from Europe. Typical turn times for most airliners these days. Domestic and not all internationals. Most international, it's a little longer. But for most domestic turn times, doesn't matter if it's a low cost carrier or a legacy carrier, is between 40 and 70 minutes these days. So 30 to 35 is insane. It doesn't make sense to me. Nope. No. Even on, like, regional jets, turn time is usually, like, 40, minutes. Well, it takes... They don't give them 30, 35 minutes. It takes half an hour to get everybody back on board and have everything be no, all ready to go. I understand that things were a little different back then. I mean, it's not even that long ago, but... It's not as packed, This and... was pre-9-11. That... And ValueJet in particular had an interesting boarding process that is very akin to Southwest today. And also a lot of other airlines. First come, first serve. Yep. Also a lot of other airlines around the world. Well, and that's the thing, is that Southwest is actually still structured because you still have a boarding order. When you start talking about airlines like Wizz Air, Welling, and Ryanair, and things they used to do, they don't all do this now, but it used to be... You showed up at the gate, they scanned your boarding pass, and then you were put behind a rope. The last person gets off the airplane, they tear the rope back, and you book it. Done. 
turn the airplane in 20 minutes. So that's basically what Value Jet was doing. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's basically what Value like, Jet was doing. Uh-huh. Just get on the plane. You don't have an assigned seat. That's a whole bunch of problems, though, with like weight and balance and. Yes and no. I mean. They figure all of that out. I it's... know, but like we were on a flight coming back from San Francisco, right? Where they had to move people back because of yes. weight and balance. Yeah. Because there, everyone was toward the front. Yes. And, and so, so they had are to the move engines. people back. Yeah. <laughs> and they so, weigh a lot. <laughs> and then they were like, we got to have 10 people. It's going to be voluntary or we're going to ask you to move. <laughs> we're going to yeah. voluntary you. Yep. So. So anyways, that's a thing. The flight did push back from the gate just before 1.40 p.m. So I imagine that the time that it arrived at the gate to the time it was pushed back from the gate was about 25 minutes. I mean, that's pretty fast. That is insanely fast. The air traffic controller gave instructions for the flight to taxi to runway 9 left at Miami, and they began their taxi at about 1.44 p.m. 2.03 p.m. in 24 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff, and the flight crew acknowledged and began their takeoff roll. A short time later, they were airborne, and exactly one minute after they were given takeoff clearance, the air traffic controller instructed them to contact the north departure controller. By this point, they were airborne. It's amazing. From the time that they were cleared to take off to the time that they were being told to change frequencies, in that time, they took off. Like, they did everything. That's what that means. They Prompt. Went. It was fast. They went, bye, <laughs> we Audi 5000. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they did. And yes, that's exactly what happened. 2.04 p.m. and 32 seconds, the first officer made an initial call to the departure controller and informed them that they were climbing to 5,000 feet. Four seconds later, the controller told the flight to climb to and maintain 7,000 feet and the first officer acknowledged this. 2.07 p.m. and 22 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn left to 300 degrees and join the WINCO, W-I-N-C-O, transition, and to climb to 16,000 feet, which the first officer acknowledged as well. 2.10 p.m. and 3 seconds, as the airplane was at 10,634 feet and 260 knots, a strange noise, like a loud thump, was heard throughout the cockpit and the entire cabin. Uh Uh-oh. The captain asked the first officer, quote, what was that? End quote. 2.10 p.m. and 15 seconds, the captain stated, quote, we got some electrical problems, end quote. And five seconds later said, quote, we're losing everything, end quote. <laughs> that escalated Whatever quickly. it was, it caused everything to go out. They are having some severe problems in the cockpit. With electrical? That's what it appears so far to them, but they also started having problems with the engines. Oh, no. 2.10 p.m. and 21 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact Miami Center on 132.45, the frequency change. The captain said, not over the radio, quote, we need to go back to Miami, end quote. That's literally what she said. Yes, thank you. I mean, that is the proper thing I would assume to do. Yes. yes. But also you need to tell the controller so they know you have to go around. Well, yeah. We'll get there. I'm sure we will. Three seconds after that, somebody in the passenger cabin shouted, Fire! 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 Oh, s***. Followed by somebody shouting, We're on fire! We're on fire! End quote. (laughs) And they can hear this on the CBR. Yep. Well, at least they're letting the pilots know? I mean... Spoiler alert, they found the CBR. Well, we'll get there. I'm sure you've already figured that out if you can figure out that I'm talking about specific quotes and stuff. Yes. 2.10 p.m. and 28 seconds, the air traffic controller once again instructed the flight to contact 132.45, since he hasn't heard from them. 
2.10 p.m. and 31 seconds, so just a few seconds later. As the flight reached their peak altitude of 10,879 feet, the first officer responded that they needed to return to Miami. So finally, he has told the air traffic controller, we are going back. Did he say they were having an emergency? No. The air traffic controller responded, Critter 592, uh, Roger, turn left heading 270, descend and maintain 7,000. So that means turn left at 270 degrees and descend to 7,000 feet. Which is dead west. Yep. The first officer acknowledged the heading and altitude. They began a wings-level descent, so that means they are not tilting down per se, but they decrease their throttle and bring the nose down, and the airplane, in theory, starts descending. Right. 2.10 p.m. and 40 seconds, the air traffic controller asked the flight why they were returning. The captain shouted at the first officer, fire! (laughs) The first officer responded to the air traffic controller, smoke in the cabin, end quote. That's literally what he said. And that's how they depicted it on air. That is exactly how they depicted it. The air traffic controller responded, Roger, then moments later, instructed the flight to turn to 250 degrees and descend to 5,000 feet. So slowly turning southbound. 2.11 p.m. and 12 seconds. A cabin crew member shouted into the cockpit, completely on fire, quote unquote. What is on, completely on fire? The cabin? Everything. The engines? What's happening? It turns out most things. Oh, Jesus Christ. What Did something explode? We'll talk about all of this. <laughs> 2.11 p.m. in 20 seconds, the airplane began flying in a southerly direction. So they finally turned past west and they're starting to head south. Six seconds later, the north departure controller informed the Miami Tower that the flight was returning with an emergency. So at least the... Departure controller was like, okay, smoke, not great. They're going to be returning in an emergency situation. Even though they haven't officially declared an emergency, this is one. <laughs> Good job. 2.11 p.m. and 37 seconds, the first officer requested the nearest available airport from the air traffic controller. So now it's getting serious. Are there any newer airports? We'll talk about that. 2.11 and 41 seconds, the air traffic controller responded, Critter 592, they're going to be standing by for you. You can plan runway 12 when able direct to Dolphin, which is a navigational point. Now, end quote. At Miami? Yes, at Miami. Okay. To 11 p.m. and 46 seconds, the first officer responded that the flight needed radar vectors to get there. Probably because their autopilot wasn't Does it work? Um, (laughs) No. So so they weren't exactly going to be able to do that. Also, they were kind of in an emergency, so they were having to deal with all of this. And they were like, just tell me where to go. Just get me there. (laughs) Just get me there. Yep. To 11 p.m. and 49 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn left to 140, and then the first officer acknowledged this. So slowly turning all the way back around, past direct south, now back toward east. Okay. Back to the airport. 2.12 p.m. and 45 seconds, so almost a minute later, the air traffic controller transmitted, quote, Critter 592, keep the turn around heading 120, end quote. So telling them to keep in their turn and go all the way to 120. So now heading almost back east. There was no response from the flight, however. Uh Uh-oh. The flight was turning, but was at 260 knots and 7,200 feet. We'll talk about why that part is important later. You do? I don't. That is when the FDR stopped. Oh, yeah, that would do it. And it was actually just before that transmission. 2.13 p.m. and 18 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed, quote, Critter 592, you can turn left heading 100 and join the runway 12 localizer at Miami, end quote. So now he's instructed them to turn 
basically almost directly east and now join the localizer for runway 12 at Miami. But again, no response from the flight crew. 2.13 p.m. and 27 seconds, so nine seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to descend to 3,000 feet. This time, a garbled response was intermingled with a call from another aircraft and was not understood, but no further communication was heard from the flight. That's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Here's where things get awful. <laughs> Great. 2.13 p.m. and 43 seconds. So this is like 15 seconds later. The air traffic controller advised that the Opalaka airport was at their 12 o'clock and 15 miles. So only marginally closer than Miami. What it the... is dead north of Miami for reference. It is. What the air traffic controller did not know at that time was that the airplane had plummeted nearly straight down and crashed into the Everglades just one second before that transmission. Oh, dang. The airplane had crashed in a right-wing-down, nose-down attitude. The crash site was 17 nautical miles northwest of Miami, so two miles further than Opalaka was from them at their current position. Now, there's a couple of witness statements I'm going to read directly from the report. Oh, I was not prepared for that. Proceed. Did you have? Nope. That? Okay. You do have some wreckage stuff, though, right? Oh, I have. Okay, because I don't... I got wreckage. I don't, because it wasn't in that section. I got wreckage. Okay. So, now I'm going to read these directly from the report, because I didn't feel like needing to summarize these. Two witnesses fishing from a boat in the Everglades when Flight 592 crashed stated that they saw a low-flying airplane in a steep right bank. According to these witnesses, as the right bank angle increased, the nose of the airplane dropped and continued downward. The airplane struck the ground in a nearly vertical attitude, nose down. The witnesses described a great explosion, vibration, and a huge cloud of water and smoke. One of them observed, quote, The landing gear was up, all the airplane's parts appeared to be intact, and that aside from the engine smoke, no signs of fire were visible, end quote. Two other witnesses, who were sightseeing in a private airplane in the area at the time of the accident, provided similar accounts of the accident. These two witnesses and the witnesses in the boat who approached the accident site described seeing only part of an engine, paper, and other debris scattered around the impact area. One of the witnesses remarked that the airplane seemed to have disappeared upon crashing into the Everglades. And when you see pictures of the initial wreckage like they have on the Air Disasters episode... It makes sense. You just see that there's no plants in one location. It's just water. Is that all you got? That's it. Okay. Immediately after the crash had been reported, Miami-Dade police began scouring the area, and the wreckage was located by their helicopter crews. The plane had crashed in the Everglades, which is a vast, marshy, swampy, tropical wetlands, taking up 7,800 square miles of the southern tip of Florida. You might recall from episode three of our adventures here. Calling it back. Calling it back. I also talk about a lot of other episodes here, so have fun building the website. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) You might recall from episode three that this is not the first time an airliner has crashed in the Everglades. In fact, Flight 592 crashed about three miles away from where Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed 24 years earlier. Having the knowledge of what happened with Flight 401, locals knew how important it was to get to any survivors quickly since many of those who survived the crash of Flight 401 drowned in the marsh or developed gaseous gangrene. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Uh Uh-huh. Not good. Not good. And as if that wasn't a big enough issue, Flight 592 crashed in the middle of an alligator nesting ground because Florida. This is why we don't live in Florida. (laughs) 
Yeah. We live nope. where the air hurts our face. Yes. yes. Rescue teams arrived as fast as possible and had to take abundant levels of precautions due to the harsh environment. Each member had to wear a Tyvek suit with extra sleeves and triple gloved to protect from jet fuel, toxic chemicals, microbes, etc. And mind you, it was 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 degrees Celsius with 95% humidity. So they were fully wet inside their suits. Yeah, they were, <laughs> That's they what were, you were saying. They were soaked by sweat <laughs> inside and outside. It was all just the marsh. They duct taped like everything, any seam around their suit. They duct taped so that nothing could get in. They were also wearing face masks before it was cool. Because they were having to deal with, yeah, jet fuel and other things. Additionally, each team had a sharpshooter. Toward away gators. Yeah. Yep, stationed on boats. On airboats, specifically. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't long before they deemed that there were no survivors. Nope. There was hardly any evidence of people at all, from how obliterated everything was. Probably barely evidence of a plane, sounds like it. Yeah, they didn't have yeah. much. I will get more into the obliteration of the people later. I'm so sorry for that sentence. It'll get worse. At one press conference, local law enforcement said it would be difficult, if not impossible, to identify everyone. When all things were said and done, 68 of the 110 bodies were identified. This investigation was performed by the NTSB, who arrived on site the morning after the accident. They already knew from air traffic control that smoke in the cabin was reported by the flight crew, so they knew they were looking at an in-flight fire situation. They led teams of numerous volunteers to start wreckage recovery in a grid-style search, with their main priority being... The black boxes. Of course. Their first resource in doing so was using a sonar scanner to pick up the signal emitted by the underwater locator beacon in each recorder box. But they quickly found that that didn't work so well, with all of the sawgrass being so dense in the area. So a foot search of volunteers nearly shoulder to shoulder was done, and this is actually how about 75% of the wreckage was recovered. I mean, that makes sense. It's pretty impressive, though. The impact crater was 130 feet long by 40 feet wide, and most of the wreckage was found within 750 feet of the crater, so investigators knew that there wasn't an in-flight breakup. A ground-penetrating radar was used to find that there was a layer of limestone rock seven feet under the water, so investigators were having to dig through broken limestone, sawgrass, sawgrass root structures, which apparently is a thing, thatch, naturally decaying material, and along with all of this, the walking search in airboats stirred up everything, so visibility in the water was zero. Mm -hmm. Great. During that long and arduous process, investigators began looking at what they did have, the maintenance records for the aircraft starting with the day of the accident. Great. In doing so, they found that the flight was delayed for minor electrical problems. I personally don't deem an unusable autopilot as minor, but to each their own. Yeah. I think that, coupled with the faulty PA system, which did get fixed, to be a symptom of a larger problem. Wiring. Did an electrical fire cause the accident? As we have discussed before, particularly with episode 9 with Swiss Air Flight 111... Electrical fires are often caused by electrical arcing. As a wire's insulation is rubbed away and the wire itself is exposed to oxygen, there's sparking and electrical arcing, which can spark a fire. This phenomenon is marked by burning and melting of the wiring and insulation. Recovery crews were definitely recovering wires, though many times when they thought they had grabbed a wire bundle, it turned out to be a snake. <gasps> yep. No thanks. I'm... So chill. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm so okay not doing that. Yeah, seriously. Florida. Anyway, investigators studied the wiring that was recovered, but all the burns were on the outside of the insulation, and there was no evidence of arcing, so it was determined that an electrical fire was not the cause of the fire. So was there an engine fire? Smoke can enter the cabin depending on the nature of an engine fire, as we discussed both in episode 77, China Airlines Flight 120, as well as... Episode 101, British Air Tours Flight 28M. You got all this? 
I'm going to make a list. Give me a sec. <laughs> I mean, it also makes sense, too, because most of the... T- well, in airplanes, the air that you're breathing when you're actually inside a pressurized tube... Comes from the engines. fed in from the engines, because that's where air is pressurized. This was determined to not be the case here, as both engines were found to have both fire extinguishing bottles intact and full, and both engines had rotation damage and ingestion of interior cabin material... Swamp grass, mud, and other debris, indicating that they were running at the time of impact. It was something in the cargo bay, wasn't it? Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only other thing I can think of. Something exploded. After two days in, recovery teams were realizing how impactful it was that the wreckage was in the Everglades. Fun fact, the Everglades is not a stagnant wetland. There's a current flowing out to sea, meaning that the wreckage that was buried and deep was coming to the surface, and wreckage that was at the surface was now floating away. Uh Uh-oh. Areas they had searched already could no longer be considered searched because of this. It was amidst this realization that someone found the flight data recorder. Hey! And it was put in a cooler full of fresh water to avoid oxidation, and it was sent off to NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. for analysis. Obviously, the CVR was also recovered, but I don't get to that yet, so... The FDR wasn't like many of today's modern FDRs that can record hundreds of parameters during the flight. It only recorded 11. Pressure altitude, indicated airspeed, magnetic heading, lateral acceleration, vertical acceleration, pitch attitude, roll attitude, both engines, EPR, control column position, and VHF microphone keying. So not much. Not much. Investigators poured over these 11 parameters and found something odd. The altitude fluctuated 800 feet and back in three seconds. There's no way in hell that an airplane can do that. Nope. So what would affect that reading? Miranda, how does a plane tell its altitude? The altimeter, the pitotude system. Can you explain that further? So the pitostatic system, there's a little thing that sticks out the front (laughs) of the airplane. (laughs) And it, it records data, basically, based on air coming into the tube. And the same thing with the static system, right? The static is perpendicular? It to is. airflow? Yes. yes. So it, it records data coming in the airplane, basically from where the nose is. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So it, that's how it tells where it is. Right? So the difference between the two. And we've covered several things where if a pitot tube is blocked or if a static system is blocked, it can cause problems with altitude readings. Correct. So what would cause an alteration to the pressure reading? What about an explosion on board and the subsequent shockwave? Yeah, that's... Uh, that right? Changes, that, that changes right? pressure. That, that has to be it, right? That changes pressure. We'll let you mull over that while we take a quick break before delving further into what caused this accident. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And we're back. I totally thought we were starting another episode because my brain broke. (laughs) It is now tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) We're recording the second half the next day. Because, oh boy, we got a lot. So, in line with suspecting that there might have been an explosive on board, investigators began examining the records from the fuselage to determine where the fire began. 
All signs pointed to an area of the left cargo compartment that burned through the ceiling and into the floor of the cabin, where they found melted seat tracks, which takes a very hot fire to do, which also means that the cabin in flight would have been a terrible place to be. Yes, yes it does. That is hot. Mucho warmo? Extremely. Yeah. (laughs) Melty melty. One particularly interesting thing of note was amidst the cargo itself. Recovery crews were finding pieces of burned stainless steel. That's distinctly odd, because there's not a whole lot of stainless steel on planes. No, there's definitely not. It's mostly titanium and aluminum. Yep. So what the hell was in the cargo compartment? Investigators got their hands on the cargo manifest and found most of the normal stuff. Luggage, mail, packages, etc. What was of note was the company material, or COMAT. This was the stuff that belonged to ValueJet that they were moving to their headquarters in Atlanta. This included three tires, two of which still had the wheel assembly attached, and five boxes of empty oxygen canisters containing a total of 144 canisters. All of this was signed for by the first officer prior to departure. Now, the five boxes were what investigators thought was strange. Not that the canisters themselves were empty, that's totally normal, but the sheer number of them. These oxygen canisters are the big green cylinders that supply oxygen to the crew's oxygen mass. Yeah. How would 144 fit in five boxes? It's not possible. Uh-huh. Recovery team started recovering those contents of the cargo compartment in larger pieces, and they found out that the steel wasn't coming from big oxygen canisters, but something different entirely. It was 144 small metal cylinders, which were identified as passenger oxygen generators. What? These are the small devices that are in the ceiling of the cabin which connect to the oxygen masks that drop for the passengers. The reason that flight crews say to pull on the masks to start the flow of oxygen is because those lines are connected to lanyards which are connected to the oxygen generators, and pulling on the mask activates a firing pin inside the cylinder to trigger the chemical reaction that produces oxygen. Makes sense. What investigators wondered was, what did they mean by empty? Because they are inherently empty. Technically. They are not full of oxygen. So, yeah, how do they explode? In examining the generators, some were found to be empty of chemicals. Some were full, some were flattened, and some were charred. Charring is interesting. Could these have started the fire? It's pretty well known among maintenance and manufacturers that these suckers get hot when activated. The chemical reaction to produce oxygen is exothermic, and the generator gets to be around 500 degrees. Ouch. Toasty. A little warmer than your oven. (laughs) Which is why they are in a heat-resistant shield when installed in the ceiling. If it wasn't in the shield, and it activated, what might happen? Big boom. Investigators added a hazardous material specialist to the team, and his first step was establishing where the generators even freaking came from, and how they got on the plane. Turns out, ValueJet had just purchased three MD-80s, and at least one of them was from Delta, and they had gone through the generators on board and removed any that had exceeded their shelf life as indicated by their expiration date. I say ValueJet did that, but that's not the whole picture. ValueJet actually outsourced maintenance to a company called SaberTech, and they were the ones in charge of this overhaul of O2 generators. In all, they removed 144 of them, and most were still full. Because of the volatile nature of the generators, the work card the maintenance team was working off of specified that a safety cap was needed for each generator that was not expended. They are supposed to have a safety cap installed to prevent the firing pin from, well, uh... Firing. Firing. Mechanics accordingly went to their supervisor for these safety caps, but were told they didn't have any. And they couldn't just use the ones from the new generators that were getting installed. Sabertech didn't keep the safety caps in inventory because this was such an infrequent task that only needed to be done every 12 years. 
Per their service agreement, ValueJet was responsible for providing the safety caps, but SaberTech never outright said they needed them, so they never obtained them. Question. If they remove these from planes, Mm -hmm. why did they need to get put on another plane to get disposed of? We'll get there. Getting there. Okay. So here's where Miranda gets mad. No safety caps, so they improvised. (laughs) Yeah, because that never killed anybody. Yeah. They cut the lanyards that would tug on the firing pins, or they just wrapped them around and taped them in place. Oh, that's a horrible idea. Leaving the pins free to move, though they didn't know that's how the mechanism worked. Wait, they didn't- wait, what? Yes, no. If you cut off the lanyard, the firing pin can still move. And that's the part that does the thing. And they didn't know that? Nope. Seems like pertinent information. Yeah, a little bit. They were then labeled with a green tag reading expired. This whole removal process did not require an inspector's signature- to confirm that they had been removed of properly, and if there had been, an inspector might have noticed the uh, lack of safety caps. Yep. They were also not properly labeled as hazardous, because the work card that they were operating off of did not specify it, but did have enough procedure information that they didn't see a need to consult the manual, which did specify that the materials, while unexpended, were hazardous. A Sabertech inspector signed off the final inspection blog for the whole work order and knew that the generators needed safety caps, but, quote, signed to the card anyway, relying on representations by supervisory personnel that this would be taken care of in the shipping and storage department, yet he never verified that this hadn't been done, end quote. It never got done. Miranda's making a face. You can't hear the face. No. Oh, you can hear the face. (laughs) But. In the silence. I don't understand that. What? If they needed those to dispose of them properly, I don't understand why they didn't have any. And if they didn't have any, why didn't they just f***ing wait? Order them! Oh, they waited. That wasn't the problem. They waited. They Those boxes sat there for... No, no. Anyway. She's saying they should have waited to even remove them from the planes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, too. If they... Hey, don't get ahead of me. Sorry. They needed why, planes. Why, why didn't... Even after they took them out. Okay, so let me continue. This all happened weeks before the flight. What were they doing in the interim? The proper disposal procedure for these is to dispose as hazardous waste in accordance with the MD-80 maintenance manual procedures. However, they sat in Sabertech's hangars for weeks until Sabertech got a new client and cleaned house to look nice for the new customer. In doing so, they handed the generators off to ValueJet since it is technically their property. And somewhere between them and getting loaded on the plane, someone got confused and indicated them on the manifest as oxygen canisters and that they were empty instead of expired. The shipping clerk was not familiar with the oxygen generators and didn't know that they had to be packaged, stored, and shipped in a certain way. ValueJet accepted the comment without any indications that the contents were hazardous and assumed that the boxes contained just that, empty oxygen cylinders, as that is what they were labeled as. On the manifest. Furthermore, the generators should not have gone on the ValueJet plane at all because they're not authorized to carry hazardous materials, period. So they just shouldn't have been on the plane, uh Uh-huh. Yep. And now Nick's going to talk about some oversight crap before I get into other crap. Great. So, let's talk about this for a moment because there's a couple things that broke down. First of all, ValueJet grew at an alarmingly fast rate. Extremely fast. Mind you, they had only started in 1992. Yes. This was fantastic from a business standpoint, but proved to be terrible from an operational standpoint. ValueJet had assigned three maintenance personnel to inspect the maintenance facility at Sabretech in Miami. They performed an initial inspection of Sabretech, 
after ValueJet opened a maintenance contract with them. But after that, there was no continual maintenance surveillance by ValueJet of SaberTech whatsoever. As they grew, and the maintenance requirements increased very, very rapidly, ValueJet seemingly had no hand in what SaberTech was doing or how they handled the maintenance of their aircraft at all. Also, during their audit of SaberTech, ValueJet did not properly examine, vet, or accept SaberTech's hazardous materials handling procedures. They didn't even really look at them at all. In this way, the NTSB sees this as ValueJet possibly accepting SaberTech's inadequate handling of their maintenance. The NTSB sees this as one of the biggest causes of the accident, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so this other company is doing your maintenance... And you're not checking that they're Value doing a good job. Value Jet's like, cool, you take care of that while we fly planes. That's not how this works. That's no. That's not how any of this works. No. If you are going to be doing maintenance, it should be on your own aircraft. You shouldn't have... You should not... No. No. Right. That's how shit gets messed up. Like this. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where the NTSB places most of the blame. But, but not, not all of it. it. Well, really, it wasn't all of it, well, right? You haven't even heard everything. Well, <laughs> ValueJet's oversight of SaberTech was obviously quite poor. But bigger than that was the FAA's oversight of ValueJet. Or lack thereof. The FAA had audited ValueJet regularly, and had in fact found that ValueJet's operations, including maintenance, were so inadequate that they suggested an immediate recertification of their 121. So in other words, they thought they were not ready to operate as a 121 operator. They need to scrap that and recertify. While the NTSB recognizes that this was valid and was a good recommendation, it was too little too late. But there was a bigger problem yet. The primary maintenance inspector from the FAA that was assigned to ValueJet had to oversee 50 different maintenance facilities in the region. One person overseeing 50 different maintenance facilities. You can't even visit all of those in a month. Nope. As a matter of fact, the primary maintenance inspector was required to make a one-time inspection of SaberTech, but not ongoing inspections per the FAA's regulations, which means that they didn't even need to be there. Even the FAA didn't need to check on all of this. Oh yeah, because that sounds super safe. Right. The primary maintenance inspector did visit SaberTech for three hours, once, before they had to leave to head to another facility. Another one of these many 50 other facilities that they had to visit. Leaving SaberTech's inspection incomplete. So, uh, here, uh, the FAA is not strapped for cash. Why didn't no, they just as a matter hire of fact, more people? Well, in a matter of, as a matter of fact, it's not that they didn't need to hire more people. They had plenty, actually. As a matter of fact, this region in specific... The NTSB deemed as overstaffed, but in all of the wrong places. They had one primary maintenance inspector for all of the region, but they had way too many people doing other things unrelated and unimportant. So, like, why? Yeah, so that's not the problem. Who looked at that and went, that's one a good maintenance idea. inspector, that seems like plenty! So ValueJet's not overseeing the operation at SaberTech. And the FAA is not overseeing that either, <laughs> which just says to me that SaberTech can pretty much do whatever they want with ValueJet's plans. And ValueJet is really the one to be held accountable for that. Not that the FAA isn't, but ValueJet 
is the one that needs to be held accountable for that because it's their airplanes and they're the one with the certificate. Yep. They have to uphold the 121 regulations. The sad part about that, though, is that for the most part, basically, they did. That's why the FAA got in real trouble. And we're not done with the FAA getting in trouble. We'll come back to that in a hot second. Yeah. So that's a really crappy situation, but there's another factor at play here. The cargo hold is designed to contain a fire, as it turns out. Yes. yes. This is a Class D cargo compartment we're talking about, meaning it is airtight. So if a fire were to burn, it would suffocate itself as it consumed all the oxygen in the cargo bay. But what if the cargo itself produced oxygen? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, <laughs> but it produces oxygen. Yeah, it turns out it... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So investigators tested this theory using, of all things, an FAA fire test facility. They placed an oxygen generator in a box, activated it, and watched. And sure, it got a little warm, but nothing caught on fire. But any good scientist knows you have to recreate the situation as close to reality as possible. So they tried again after interviewing the shipping crews to determine that the packing material, which turned out to be bubble wrap. So they did this with Five boxes full of generators, as they had in the cargo bay. And they also surrounded the boxes with things that would have also been in the cargo, like the tires and luggage and other flammable things. And behold, fire! Specifically, there was an unbelievably high shrill noise as the fire started, and the fire grew rapidly. Ten minutes after ignition, the ceiling was measured to be at 2,000 degrees. Jesus Christ. Later, the temperature exceeded 3,000 degrees, as well as the capacity for the monitoring equipment, and the fire almost destroyed the test facility. So yeah, it would definitely uh, uh -huh. ruin an airplane. Uh-huh. Yep. Especially when that cargo holds in the forward part of the airplane. Uh-huh. Where most important things run from the cockpit to the back where everything else operates. Yeah. So it was determined that multiple generators were activated while being jostled during the loading process or takeoff, and they heated up all through takeoff. That thump that was heard on the CVR was determined to be one of the tires exploding. Oh, jeez. And they were loaded against the wall that was just above the static ports for the pedostatic system. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's why they registered a weird 800-foot jump in altitude. So, I mentioned that this was a Class D cargo hold. This means it was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped with... Fire extinguishers. Or fire detection systems. Mm. Investigators somewhat obviously concluded that if they had had either of those at their disposal, the crew might have gotten the plane safely on the ground. Yeah, because they could Maybe. extinguish the fire. Well, and they... Or at least have a part seen of it, it sooner. Most of it. At least have seen it sooner. And here's where Miranda gets mad. Again. Again. Eight years earlier, American Airlines Flight 132, a DC-9, had an in-flight fire as a result of oxidizers in the cargo, specifically a 50% concentration solution of hydrogen peroxide, a sodium orthosilicate-based mixture, and a wet fiber drum all combined to create a fire. Upon issuing their report, the NTSB made several recommendations, as we know they are wont to do, and recommended that the FAA require fire and smoke detection and fire extinguishing systems for all Class D cargo compartments. To which the FAA responded, stating that, quote, fire slash smoke detection and fire extinguishment systems were not cost beneficial and did not believe that these systems would provide a significant degree of protection to occupants of airplanes, end quote. Who came up with that? I'm sorry. What? You should never play the cost card in safety. The entire what? time I was writing that, I foresaw this reaction. 
You're kidding. No. The FAA played the cost card. It's too expensive. We'll talk about this, but that got them in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. It's not going to help anything. Well. (laughs) The NTSB considers this decision to be causal to this accident. Yep. Well, no Sherlock. They deserved that. No. The FAA deserved that. Yeah. And we'll get more into those consequences later. Now, all through this, I had quite a few questions that you might also be having. Did the crew put on their oxygen masks? Oh, that is a good question. Were they conscious? Based on the CVR, it was determined that because their voices were relatively clear, the crew did not don their oxygen masks, which is a huge red flag for me. Well, were they getting any smoke in the cockpit, though? Because okay, if they didn't... We'll talk a little bit about that. So not at first. I'm talking about it right now because she asked the question and I know the answer. Yes. So at first they weren't getting any... I do, too. Smoke in the cabin, or in the cockpit. But then the cabin crew wanted to tell the cockpit that there was smoke in the cabin. But the interphone wasn't working the other direction, so the cabin crew couldn't contact the cockpit. So what's the only way they can do that? Open the door. They opened the door. And then they left it open. For smoke to come in. The cockpit. by the way, they said even after that happened... There was not an enormous amount of smoke in the cockpit, actually. I mean, when you think about it, to the time that they talked, opened the cockpit door to the mm-hmm. time they crashed... Was not very long. Yeah. So I kind ab- of understand not donning the Do you oxygen talk about all masks. that timing? A little bit. So okay. let, let me keep going. The, the whole thing there, though, is that even though not a lot of smoke came into the cockpit even then, what did come in was terrible fumes. Yes. That they couldn't breathe in. Because things like tires were burning. Oh, right. So even if it wasn't just smoke, it was other things in the air. And this, I'm pretty sure this is still in the age where, like, the fumes from the seats burning was really bad. Oh, yeah, probably. Possibly. No, I think it was before this. Yeah, but this is a DC-9. I I don't remember. Oh, that's true. We don't know how old the actual aircraft is. We don't know what they had in the cabin. We don't know. So, did the checklist say that they should put on oxygen masks? Yes, it did. Thank God. But there are a couple of factors at play here. For one, the captain had recently experienced something similar with a fire and was able to land without needing an oxygen mask, predisposing her to think that she wouldn't need one. Furthermore, investigators performed a little unofficial impromptu survey among pilots from all sorts of carriers and found that donning their oxygen mask was not their first instinct. Yeah, we had this, we haven't talked about this flight yet, but there's a flight that happens that mm-hmm. it, it, they just weren't trained to put it on first. Yes. Yeah, we're still in that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that I understand because it's not, they didn't get trained that the way. The one thing the NTSB never does here is blame the pilots, FYI. Well, I would say that the pilots weren't 100% the problem. Um, no. They, they weren't, like, weren't, not even the problem. Actually, they weren't the problem at all. They were trying to land the plane safely. And I'm going to keep going into that. The crew at first also wasn't inclined to think it was a fire. At first, it was electrical problem problems, indicating that the fire had already burned into the space between the cargo and the cabin, which is where the wire harness was. But then they also had another problem, which we didn't actually really talk about all that much. The captain tried to reduce engine power to idle, so that they could descend, but the left engine remained at climb power when she did that. I left that part out because this is very pertinent as to the attitude in which they hit the ground. They were in a right roll. Because the left engine was still going full bore. So the left wing was getting left and going up, and the right wing was going So on top of all their other problems, the crew had to battle engine asymmetry, adding to their workload. 
This eventually led to their impact roll attitude, and the controls would have only deteriorated as the control cables burned, which go through the floor of the cabin. Dang. Next question. Was the crew conscious? Was anyone conscious? Based on the CVR alone, no. It was eerily silent, with just the sound of the wind for seven seconds before impact. But investigators wanted to know in more quantitative terms how bad that was. Now, we know from some of the previous episodes we've covered, you can measure CO levels. You can measure cyanide levels. I apologize for the beginning of the following quote, but it is pertinent information. Quote, A small amount of human tissue was identified as that of the first officer. Yeah. However, because of the insufficient amount and the condition of the tissue, toxicology testing was not possible. None of the remains recovered were identified as those of the captain. The safety board requested toxicology sampling of passenger remains in an effort to determine the carbon dioxide and hydrogen cyanide levels that may have been present in the plane. According to the Dade County Medical Examiner, all of the human tissue and bodily fluids recovered were unsuitable for testing. End quote. Because of this, investigators were unable to determine the level of consciousness of the flight crew, cabin crew, and passengers. In all, it took 3 minutes and 42 seconds from recognition of a problem for the fire to bring down the plane. From the moment they heard the thump to the moment... They impacted. They impacted. was just Uh, over three and a half minutes. Yeah, not great. That's all I got. Okay, let's roll into some findings, shall we? Because there's a lot to unpack here. There were 47 of these, and we're not doing 47 of these... As a matter of fact, we're skipping the first four. The NTSB found that the accident airplane was equipped and maintained in accordance with federal regulations and approved procedures, and there was no evidence of pre-existing mechanical malfunctions or other discrepancies in the airplane structure, flight controls, or power plants that would have contributed to the accident. The reason I left that one in there is because they were flying without a functioning autopilot, and I would argue that that's an important thing that these days you can't fly without and is on the minimum equipment list. Also, the interphone system, we'll talk about here in a little bit, also on the minimum equipment list now. Well, now because you have locked cockpit doors. Back then you didn't. Correct. But now you have to have an interphone system to contact the flight crew. Yes. You can't just open the door willy-nilly. That's right. Nope. (laughs) They found that the activation of one or more chemical oxygen generators in the forward cargo compartment of the airplane initiated the fire on ValueJet Flight 592. One or more of the oxygen generators likely were activated at some point after the loading process began, but possibly as late as during the airplane's takeoff roll. There's no way to really tell. They didn't know exactly, but they figured it happened sometime at or before takeoff. What they basically did is they reverse engineered from the fire that they created intentionally how long it would take yes and it kind of depended on how many generators got activated to which we'll never really know the answer right dang so they gave a range right a range a range they found that even if the fire did not start until the airplane took off a smoke slash fire warning device would have more quickly alerted the pilots to the fire and would have allowed them more time to land the airplane i.e. they wouldn't have flown seven minutes into the sky without knowing. Yeah. Ten minutes, even, without knowing that there was actually a fire. Muy importante. Muy importante. They found that had the Federal Aviation Administration required fire-slash-smoke detection and fire extinguishing extinguishment systems in Class D cargo compartments, as the Safety Board recommended in 1988, ValueJet 592 would likely not have crashed. No. This is the only time I'm going to talk about this, because I don't want to repeat it the other 40 times they repeat it, (laughs) because they're really adamant about this point yet again, which we have brought up in the past, 
and it is not always possible. However, in a lot of modern cargo compartments, I will go to this extent on this topic. On a lot of modern cargo compartments, they do have extinguishers, and also, because everything is very electronic these days, they have immediate warnings of exactly where a fire or smoke is detected in a cargo compartment on pretty much every airplane in existence now. Yeah. It's just a thing. It's easy. It doesn't take a lot of weight added to the system either. No. I mean, these devices are tiny. Tiny. And also, I would like to point out that no one had to die for them to implement this recommendation. I agree. <laughs> Bless you. American Airlines Flight 132, where that whole thing came from, no one died. They were able to land safely, I think, at Dallas-Fort Worth. And uh, I think it was wherever they left from. In any case, no one had to die, but then people died. But then people died. Because of the FAA's stupid decision. And ValueJet. Yes, but even if ValueJet had made the stupid decision, if the FAA had done their job yeah, Again. and required it, even if there had been a fire, they probably could have gotten on the ground and evacuated. Again, we'll talk about the repercussions of that here in a bit. They found that given the information available, the ramp agents and flight crews' acceptance of the company materials shipment was not unreasonable, i.e., written on the manifest, empty oxygen canisters. There's nothing wrong with that. They didn't find anything wrong with it. I want to know how it got so mixed up. It was, I think it was ultimately determined to be Sabretech's shipping clerk who made the error in describing what was in the shipment, because why would they be familiar with that? They're just a shipping clerk. Talking a little bit about that, like, the whole thing there is that the shipping clerk didn't have the right training or materials for hazardous material shipments but from also, Sabertech. But also, the maintenance crews who removed the generators did not label them as hazardous. Right. And I found out that was because it was also not on their work orders. No, that's what I said. It wasn't yes. on their work card. It was in the manual. Exactly. But because the work card had so much ample instructions for them to complete the tasks, they figured they didn't need to look at the manual, that the card had everything they needed. Whereas the manual said, no, this is hazardous and you should label it as such. They did recommend that it go all the way back to the manufacturer of the canisters to be labeled as hazardous material, which I imagine these days they have to be. Well, Anyways. that's the other part of not letting anybody else do your maintenance for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which still gets done by a lot of airlines today. I mean, this is a common thing, but there's a lot more oversight these days and it takes a lot to be a... It's not so much that there's a separate manufacturer or a separate maintenance Facility slash company, it's more of you need to have the correct oversight to accommodate such a thing. Right. I thought this was an interesting one, and I'm surprised that this was not found to be a bigger thing. But they found that ValueJet's failure to secure the cargo was not unreasonable. Because they didn't know what it was. Right, they didn't know what it was. And that technically was not their fault. Mm-hmm. And even if they had secured it, the firing pins still could have moved. There's a possibility. Yes, but they argue that because the cargo was free, obviously it was going to fire the firing pins. Yeah, but even so, like there was no guarantee, even if it was strapped down, that the firing pins would not have ignited anyway. No, but yeah, you're saying it, there's a chance. But a takeoff roll would have done it yeah. just fine. Yeah. Especially if they're free, like they don't have any lanyards. Like, yep. yeah. They found that the loss of control was most likely the result of flight control failure from the extreme heat and structural collapse. However, the safety board cannot rule out the possibility that the flight crew was incapacitated by smoke or heat in the cockpit during the last seven seconds of flight, 
this one's interesting because more than likely, yes, they were incapacitated for the last seven seconds. But what they depicted it in the episode is that that was the sole reason they crashed. They didn't really bring up the fact that the fire burned through everything. Including the control cables. Including the control cables. And the fact that there was no chance. You can't do diddly squat. There was no chance. Had the crew been conscious or not. In the episode, they made it sound like the crew's incapacitation was the reason the accident happened. I'm not going to say blame, but the reason that it happened. In reality, even if they had been conscious... They wouldn't have been able to control the airplane. The airplane was done. It was unfortunately... There was nothing they could do. Yeah, there was no good outcome for this. They found that there is inadequate guidance for air carrier pilots about the need to don oxygen masks and smoke goggles immediately in the event of a smoke emergency. Now, those two items are one cohesive unit. Yes. At the time, they were not. Now it's a whole thing with smoke in the cockpit, you put them on. Right. Without even looking at a checklist, that's just a memory thing. Smoke in the cockpit, they go on. Because you can't do anything if you're incapacitated and you can't see. Right. So that's a whole thing. Okay, I lumped a couple of these together, and I'm not going to read them, but the gist of this is, is on the DC-9, in specific, they found that pilots would not use the goggles because of how long it took to get the goggles out and on. So they would rather have just dealt with the situation at hand instead of donning the goggles. And the NTSB agrees that this is a horrible thing. <laughs> like, these were, this was a horrible design. They're in packaging that you have to... Open. Remove and open, and then don these apparently very cumbersome goggles. And all of that was just a mess. So, so now the goggles and mask are just one unit. You see this on in movies and stuff all the time. Yes. And I'm pretty sure they're just hanging on the back of their seat. Most of the time, actually, they're right in the ceiling above their head. Oh. They literally just pull straight down. So not hard to get to. Pretty quick. Yep. The exactly. only thing that kind of sucks from an, I think, from an investigator's perspective is once those are on, it's really hard on the CVR to understand what they're saying. Yes, they do now on a lot of the modern airplanes. They record directly from the microphones inside the masks. The masks. That makes sense. They found that given the potential hazard of transporting oxygen generators and because oxygen generators that have exceeded their service life are not reusable, they should be actuated before they are transported. In other words, they should have fired all of the firing pins before they ever tried to move them. Intentionally. I mean, that just makes sense. Do it in a safe facility where they can get hot and and not burn anything and then... Do it in the middle of a parking lot for all I care. Yes. Again, lumping together a a handful of other findings here that are related to that, they say that this should have been noted on the work cards, this should have been noted in the manuals, and this should have been, you know, a standard practice. And they shouldn't have been transported by the airline's aircraft, by a passenger aircraft, period. Yeah. That's, That's a whole nother thing. They also should have had safety caps. They also should have had safety caps, yes. So, yeah, they go into a whole thing about the instruction cards, the work cards, and then warning signs, i.e. hazardous material warning signs, coming from direct from the manufacturer on those units. Yeah. Saying, these are hazardous. Do not ship them with passengers. Which Bad is funny because... idea. Which is funny because they are in the overhead all the time. But they're behind a heat shield. Yep, and mounted. And which not is... next to anything that's particularly flammable. Right. Rather than free and open to fire. And each other. Yes. Okay. Skipping ahead. They found that although the installation of safety caps would not likely have prevented the oxygen generators from being transported on board Flight 592, 
It is very likely that had safety caps been installed, the generators would not have activated and the accident would not have occurred. So, at very least, they're transporting these things. They're not supposed to move by their passenger airplanes. But, even though they did, if they had firing caps on them, at least they probably wouldn't have had a fire. Yeah. But they did. That whole thing is just dumb to me. Like, if you didn't have the firing caps, I don't understand why you can't just order the firing caps. They're probably just pieces of plastic. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I don't understand the whole thing of they were sitting there for weeks. Order the caps. Right. So they can be moved. Right. Then you don't have to try to get rid of them when you have to quote unquote clean house. Right. Just saying. Yep. They found that the lack of formal system in SaberTech's shipping and receiving department, including procedures for tracking the handling and disposition of hazardous materials, contributed to the improper transportation of generators aboard Flight 592. SaberTech just didn't have a procedure for this period. So that's a big issue. And ValueJet didn't oversee any of that because they never looked into it. And as a 121 operator, they're not supposed to carry them. They found that some aspects of air carrier maintenance programs do not adequately reflect the human factors issues involved in the air carrier maintenance environment. This is a human factors argument that does come up in a lot of reports, and it's a really important piece. Human factors training is a whole thing. I mean, you can get a degree in aviation human factors because it is a massive thing. Massive thing. It is the one big variable still in aviation. People suck. People do suck. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean we should solely rely on automation, Airbus. No, because those are also run by people, and people suck. Yes. They're so, programmed by people, and people suck. It's yep. like those those self-driving cars, right? Like, they're not perfect. Because they're programmed by people. Right. Right. There's no, no way for the, them to be 100% perfect. Right. Because humans are not 100% perfect. Right. One of the things that they noted, and again, I'm lumping a few together here, but one of the things they noted is that there was no training by ValueJet or by SaberTech. And along with the training piece, also there was no differentiation, let alone understanding that hazardous material from an outside company versus hazardous material of an airline-owned material is should be handled the same. Right. So, say they had oxygen tanks that were being transported for some third-party company from one location to another as a cargo, they're not allowed to transport those normally in an airplane. But for some reason, they thought it was okay to transport oxygen containers just because they were airline-owned. There was no differentiation. When the NTSB interviewed some of the SaberTech technicians, yeah, this was a problem. They found that they just didn't understand how hazardous material shipment worked and the differentiations, the similarities, the rules, the regulations, any of that. They right. just didn't know. A couple more here. They found that the manner in which the Federal Aviation Administration's southern region applied to the results of the Flight Standard District Office, or the FISDO's, staffing level models was not sufficiently flexible to account for a rapidly growing and complex air carrier and resulted in inadequate level of inspection resources in the Atlanta FISDO. Atlanta is the region that handles all the way down to Miami and everything, so they would have overseen the SaberTech and everything, because it's the southern region. Yeah. So, point being, they were staffed incorrectly. Like I said, the yep. FAAs just didn't do this right. They found that had the Federal Aviation Administration responded to prior chemical oxygen generator fires and allocated sufficient resources and initiated programs to address the potential hazards of these generators, including issuing follow-up warnings and inspecting these shipping departments of aircraft maintenance facilities, the chemical oxygen generators might not have been placed in Flight 592. I That's... didn't read that that had happened before. Yeah. 
the FAA dropped the ball multiple times. No, yeah, that so many times. Yeah, that's the thing. So now we're going to talk about something completely different and something a little unrelated to the accident. Skipping forward to the last two, and I will read both of these. They found that ValueJet did not follow its internal procedures for boarding and accounting for lap children. So. Originally, there were... That's what you meant by people. Originally, there were 104 passengers on the manifest. But there was a lap infant, who technically should not have been accounted for as a lap infant because they were four years old. That's not a lap infant. That's not a lap infant. They can have their own seat. Exactly. But because of ValueJet's boarding procedures, they missed a lap infant. And part of what the NTSB was kind of delving into is, well, we should have the names on the manifest of all lap infants. But when you think about it, the reason that there's a manifest of all the passengers is they have to show some form of ID. Right. Kids don't have IDs. Right. So this has since been taken care of during the ticketing process because Mm. now you have to... Even though it's free, you have to buy a ticket, quote-unquote, for your lap lap infant infant, and enter their information. Yes, you do. So that is how that has been taken care of in the modern day, thank you, technology, but... Right. Along those lines, they say, they found that it is essential that air carriers maintain easily accessible and accurate records of the names of both ticketed and unticketed passengers aboard their flights for retrieval in the event of an accident or other emergency. Regardless of age. Yep. Damn. So that's a thing. Okay, now for a really long probable cause. (laughs) Verbatim, as always. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident, which resulted from a fire in the airplane's Class D cargo compartment that was initiated by the actuation of one or more oxygen generators being improperly carried as cargo, were, one, the failure of Sabretech to properly prepare, package, and identify unexpended chemical oxygen generators before presenting them to ValueJet for carriage, Two, the failure of ValueJet to properly oversee its contract maintenance program to ensure compliance with maintenance, maintenance training, and hazardous material requirements and practices. And three, the failure of the Federal Aviation Administration to require smoke detection and fire suppression systems in Class D cargo compartments. Contributing to the accident was the failure of the FAA to adequately monitor ValueJet's heavy maintenance programs and responsibilities, including ValueJet's oversight of its contractors and Sabretech's repair station certificate. The failure of the FAA to adequately respond to prior chemical oxygen generator fires with programs to address the potential hazards, and ValueJet's failure to ensure that both ValueJet and contract maintenance facility employees were aware of the carrier's no-carry hazardous materials policy and had received appropriate hazardous materials training. Yeah, that. <sighs> Jesus so, Christ. So what you might note in there is that the pilots don't come up at any point in time. Because it wasn't their fault. It wasn't their fault, and as a matter of fact, the NTSB felt that they were actually carrying out crew resource management very well, given the circumstances. They were doing the best that they could, given the training they had and the situation they were in. So actually, the flight crew did a great job in this. And the episode, the air crash investigation episode, there was a portion of... The interview given by one of the parents of the captain. Yep. And how she felt that this whole situation was very wrongful. And this got an insane amount of media coverage. We'll go into the recommendations here, but it's hard to overstate just how big of an accident this was, even though it wasn't one of the biggest accidents in history. This just had a lot of precedent. There were an insane amount of media coverage, and changes that came out of this accident. So speaking of, 
going through the recommendations, and I'm not going to read these verbatim because there's a lot of them. And a lot of them are about fire extinguishers in the cargo compartments. Which we kind of <laughs> knew was coming. Yes. But primary of the recommendations that they do say is for flight crews to have that automatic response in donning oxygen masks and goggles. It's a big deal. Even though it probably wouldn't have saved their lives in this situation because ultimately they didn't have enough information to have have this situation end well, they still it was still would have been a good idea to have that piece in place. Yeah. And they didn't. They also recommended changing the goggles on the DC-9, which ultimately the DC-9s didn't last much longer. They were mostly retired within a decade, so that isn't really a thing anymore. They recommend that the oxygen canisters should never be transported on passenger-carrying aircraft, which is already a regulation. This was just like a... This hey, is by a, the way. Just so you, you're aware. This was a specific recommendation that basically by creating this recommendation, it could be easily circulated to all of the airlines around the world. And it was like, hey, by the way, these things we told you not to, to transport. Yeah, really don't transport them. Yeah. Ever. They're hazardous for a reason. Right. They recommend things about adding the hazardous material warnings on the canisters. Oh, yeah. That, of course, is a thing. Oh, this was a thing. Personnel fatigue. At maintenance facilities. What? This wasn't something... I'm not surprised, honestly. This wasn't something we really talked about, but Sabretech was working their people into the ground. You can't do that. So that that was a whole other reason that they were like, okay, there was also probably some bad decision making by just purely by the fact that they were tired. Yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah. Of course. (laughs) We just talked about this in a Miranda sword that we also recorded today. Yes. So... Fatigue is bad. Shameless plug. Go be a patron. Be a patron. You can listen to that episode. Listen to January's Miranda episode for that. Is that all you got? I think so. Okay, so let's go into some of the aftermath of this. So obviously, Sabretech, ValueJet, and FAA all look like crap. Yes. So in the, this is all a quote from the Wikipedia page. I take no responsibility for how this is worded. It is all properly cited as far as I'm aware. In 1997, a federal grand jury indicted Sabretech for mishandling hazardous materials, failing to train its employees in proper handling of hazardous materials, conspiracy, and making false statements. Sabretech's maintenance supervisor, Daniel Gonzalez, and two mechanics who worked on the plane, Eugene Florence and Mauro Ociel Valenzuela Reyes, were charged with conspiracy and making false statements. Two years later, having been found guilty on the mishandling hazardous materials and improper training charges, Sabretech was fined $2 million in order to pay $9 million in restitution. Gonzalez and Flores were acquitted on all charges, while Valenzuela failed to appear in court and was indicted in absentia for contempt of court. Valenzuela is still a fugitive as of 2021. And probably now as of 2022. He was specifically highlighted in the EPA's announcement of a website to search for environmental fugitives. The FBI has offered a $10,000 reward for information about his whereabouts. Guys, we've got to find this dude. I know. He's probably in South America at this point. Probably. Or who knows where, Fiji? He could, he could be, be anywhere. Anywhere. Literally anywhere. This happened the year we were born, Miranda. I'm, I'm just saying, I could use $10,000. Okay? I know, but this guy's still on the run today. Now, for the uh, more impactful ones. ValueJet was grounded. Yes. <laughs> about a month after the accident, and was, however, was allowed to resume flying again on September 30th. They didn't last much longer, though. But never recovered from the crash. In 1997, the company acquired Airtran Airways. Although ValueJet was the nominal survivor, the ValueJet executives believed that a new name was important to regain passenger traffic. Airtran made little mention of its past as ValueJet. 
All of this was covered on the Rachel Maddow show, by the way, like a couple months ago, which was really crazy. Yeah, this is a whole thing. And I've actually, I flew on AirTran at one point, and they they weren't bad. There was They were actually around for a period of time, and they were a really big, low-cost carrier. It was a whole thing. In 2010, AirTran was purchased by Southwest Airlines. Like, yep. it got nommed by something. They got nommed by Southwest Airlines, but half of their assets went to Delta, because all of, they were based in Atlanta still. That's how Delta got all of their 717s. Gotcha. Many families of Flight 592's victims were outraged that ValueJet was not prosecuted given the airline's poor safety record. ValueJet's accident rate was not only one of the highest in the low fare sector, but also 14 times higher than that of legacy airlines. In the aftermath of the crash, an internal FAA memo surfaced questioning whether ValueJet should have been allowed to stay in the air. The victims' families also point to statements made by ValueJet's officials immediately after the crash, which led many to believe that ValueJet knew the generators were on the plane and had ordered them to return to Atlanta rather than properly disposed of in Miami. So after this, the Federal Aviation Administrator was fired. Yeah. His boss, the Secretary of Transportation of the United States of America. Fired. Was fired. Yeah, that, that I saw that coming. Value Jet cleaned house in the United States. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they were like, we're taking the walls down with us. So, yeah, it made a huge impact, all things considered. There are memorials, as you might expect. There's a memorial of 110 concrete pillars located just north of Tamiami Trail, about 12 miles west of Chrome Avenue in Miami-Dade County. It points to the location of the crash 12 miles to the north-northeast. In June 2013, a local resident stated that while slogging through the sawgrass several months earlier, he found a partially melted gold pendant in the same area. But it was undetermined if, it, if that was from the ValueJet crash or from Eastern Airlines Flight 401. Could have been either. Honestly. So... The- Everglades also have a current out to the ocean. I, I mentioned that. Right. So it carries most things out there, so it can also move things around. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's everything. I think we covered everything. A there, bunch of people got fired. A lot of people messed yes. up. There was quite a few other little recommendations. They even made recommendations to, like, the Postal Service, cargo carriers in general, as well as, like, research facilities and NASA. Like, they had everybody involved in this because it was such a big thing. And ultimately... It was a very changing accident for the industry. It changed a lot of things. It changed the oversight of maintenance facilities. It changed how we handle hazardous materials, what travels on airplanes, cargo compartments, what's acceptable you know, for oversight and management of airlines, as well as FAA standards and staffing. And I mean, it goes deep. This, this, one, went, this one went hard. Went hard. Now on another subject, we have two listener questions. We can either do this one of two ways. We can do one in this episode, one in the next episode. So Let's it's do them not both super now. long. Let's do them both now. Well, the first one's really to Nick. So this is from Kate, our patron Kate. Hello, Kate. We love you, Kate. They Thanks. say, hello, happy holidays. A little late for that. Thank you, anyway. This may be slightly, a slightly silly question, but what do the blue lights on the tarmac of my local GA airport mean? I just noticed them, and because they had the whole airport lit up bright blue due to stormy weather. Great question. These are actually just apron lights. So these are what follow the taxiways and the edges of the aprons and everything to show the pilots basically just where the edge of concrete and asphalt and all that is so they don't go off. Don't go in the grass. Don't go in the dirt. These are just general guide lights along the edges of taxiways and along the edges of asphalt and concrete surfaces to say, yeah, don't pass this. Yeah. And depending on how crazy your airport looks, may or may not be a lot of blue. Yes, uh, my local airport and home airport has a lot of it. A lot of blue. 
But but if you're looking at one of those airports that has like a runway, not as bad. Yeah. A lot of smaller airports actually don't even have actual lights. They just have reflectors. They're still blue, but they're reflectors. It's like when they had the, the glow-in-the-dark tape on our flight instead mm-hmm. of the lights. Yep, yep. Which is more economical. Yes. Mm-hmm. And still works if the power's cut. Yep. Yep. All right, and then the next one's from Ash. Hello, Ash. Also a patron, hey, I believe. Ash. Thank Unless you, left. But if you left, you're uh, whatever. Thank Anyways. you both. This is to each of you, so you just oh, have God. to answer. What type of incident do you find most interesting to cover? As in pilot error, weather phenomenon, mechanical failure, etc. Mine would be pilot such human error, as even though it's sometimes infuriating, I find it interesting to learn about people and behaviors, etc. Hope you're all well, and once again, thank you for all the hard work you guys do. Thanks. So I'm an engineer. Yeah. I already knew what Christie's would be. <laughs> I knew what yours was going to be. I obviously find the mechanical failures to be far more interesting, but not necessarily the most devastating. Yeah, that's fair. Honestly, I think for me, some of it's pilot error, but I don't think it's really like one specific type. I think the ones that I like the most are some of the most like nuanced. When something just really strange that you just can't imagine possibly happening or possibly being the cause of an accident really is. Those are the ones that to me are the most intriguing. That makes I'm sense. Not, like, it, it's just, sometimes it's just mind-blowing how yeah. things happen. I mean, i.e. China Airlines. Uh-huh. How a washer caused an airplane to burn on the tarmac after landing. Like, that's just crazy. Those little nuanced things. I mean, there, there are so many accidents like that where, you know, it, it takes a lot of investigative work and it is just, it, sometimes it's amazing to me how they figure that kind of stuff out. Now, this is not what you asked, but another thing, the kinds of accidents that I struggle with the most comprehending as far as understanding what went wrong, how it happened, is anything to do with navigation. Yeah. I really struggle understanding like VORs and crap. Sometimes I think that stuff can be kind of fun because it is challenging to the brain in its own way. And for me, that can be kind of the weird, nerdy, fun kind of challenge for aviation. More for me is like, I've never sat in the cockpit of a plane and tried to navigate before. And that's fair. So it's like... And a lot of that VR navigation, which to be honest, will be outdated in the coming decades. But it's still relevant to our podcast. And without seeing it and doing it myself, it is so hard for me to comprehend. Yes. It is, it is a very hard thing to comprehend. Even as a pilot, it doesn't matter. It is a hard thing to comprehend. You're flying, and it's still hard to figure that stuff out. Randa? I really like covering pilot error stuff. Because mm-hmm. you like getting mad? Well, there's <laughs> that. But also, especially when I'm like covering a Miranda episode, I don't have to understand the mechanics as much. Yeah, the Because de- I'm not a mechanical engineer. <laughs> right. Fun fact. No, really? <laughs> so sometimes, like, I've covered stuff before where it's like that, and I'm like, I don't understand what's going on here. But I like covering pilot error because I understand people, right? So That's fair. I like, like, the Miranda so we covered today. Like, yeah, you're going to get tired. When I'm tired, I know for sure I'm not going to be able to do shit. And so, you're cranky, and so were they. I'm very cranky. <laughs> I get it. So it's one of those things where I can relate more to the episode when it's pilot error. Not that I don't like the mechanical error, because I like that too. Because to be frank, when there's a mechanical error, there's a, a human error somewhere. Yes. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, the plane fell out of the sky. Like, there's a reason that the thing went bad, and then the plane fell out of the sky. Right. right. So, there you go. 
I will say, yes, I understand I am inclined to teach about the mechanical failures, but I really enjoy that aspect of it, of the teaching. That's like the only way that I have this outlet for my engineering right now. However, I do kind of get scared that I don't explain things as well as I think I do. These two know me super well at this point, so they can understand kind of my train of thought, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense to everyone else. So if you guys ever have a question about anything I've covered, please email us, reach out to us in any way you can, and I will do my damnedest to clarify. Well, that's also kind of my job, right? Dumb it down. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm the dumb down person. <laughs> but you're, okay. you're also at the point where you could look at a fraction and be like, yeah, that's fatigue. Yeah. I can also explain why I know it's fatigue. That's true. But I do think, I mean, we've heard from other people that we know and such that you do explain things well. You know, I'm, I'm just self-conscious. <laughs> I get it. No, you do a good job. So thank you, Ash and Kate, for your questions. Thanks. If anyone else has questions, please email us. There's also a thing on the website. Yep. Also, there's a thing to get ducks. We're it's sending out ducks. Oh, yeah, we need to do that. Also, if you're a patron, we haven't had this lately, but if you upgrade, we will send you your merch. It will happen. We're busy people, guys. We're trying our best here. We're struggle lugging. (laughs) We're struggle busting along. It's it's a new year. You started your new part of the school year. Yeah. New second half. I started a new job. You're now working from the office more often. So There's a lot of things go into this. We do have full-time jobs on top of this. We are all doing as best as we can. Yeah. We're adulting. So, as for that, thank you very much for listening. Make sure you give us some five-star reviews and stuff. You can do that now on Spotify. You can also do it on Apple Podcasts. You can also do it on Facebook if you are not part of our Facebook group. Or or our page, it's not a group. And uh, thanks again, everybody. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you're using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. And a big thanks to Jake for editing this episode. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.